Today's podcast is brought to you by our podcast partner, Parkinson's Queensland. Hello, I'm Patrick Hurd, Principal Consultant at Community Business Australia, and welcome to Seen and Heard, a podcast about communities and the events and issues that shape the people and organisation within those communities. My special guest today is Miguel Diaz, CEO of Parkinson's Queensland, and our topic today is leading a charity. Miguel joined Parkinson's Queensland as CEO in February of 2020 after a career spanning the arts, corporate and not-for-profit sectors. Miguel has had senior roles with organisations such as PwC, EY, Minteralis, TAFE Queensland and Camp Quality. He's also served on several not-for-profit boards and as chair of a Queensland government board. Miguel's passion is to make a difference to individuals, communities and organisations he engages with. And when he is not at work, you'll find him enjoying time with his family and friends, exercising, playing football, that's the round ball football, or playing music. Once upon a time, Miguel was a professional singer, with stints performing in the Phantom of Opera and with Opera Australia, so he can sing for his supper. During this podcast, I'll be delving into Miguel's background, asking him what attracted him to this latest challenge in his fascinating career leading a charity. An update on the world of Parkinson's and the medical science uh, and what's it reporting and more importantly I'll be seeking his insights on contemporary leadership in not-for-profit and charity organisations. Now let's introduce Miguel. Welcome Miguel. Thanks Patrick, thanks for having me. Wow, you've enjoyed a really fascinating career as I outlined in my introduction and I want to examine uh, and understand your journey, particularly what led you to your current role a bit more in our conversation. But firstly, I've got to ask, tell us about Opera Australia and your, uh. your other profession. <laughs> well, my first love, as I like to call it. Um, yeah. Yes, look, I've been involved in music, I guess, since uh, probably since before I was born. And, um, uh, and it's been my passion uh, for many, many years, and I guess uh, it was a dream of mine growing up to be able to perform professionally, so that's what I did. I went off and uh, studied at the New South Wales Conservatorium of Music, graduated, and was fortunate enough to have an amazing singing career for quite a number of years with Opera Australia, and I was fortunate, incredibly fortunate to be in the the original Sydney cast of The Phantom of the Opera, so it was a... um, it, look, it was a, a, an amazing ride, uh, and, sure. uh, and one that I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed. And music is still, you know, a huge part of my life. Um, so, when you say music, obviously singing, of course. Um, but what, are there other instruments you play, or you know, what, what's been that love and that passion? Well, look, I guess it started with me playing the guitar. My grandfather bequeathed me his guitar when he passed away. Mm-hmm. Um, I was eight, I was three at the time, and I started learning to play when I was big enough to put my hands around it. I think I was five at the time. And that was the start of my love of music and then singing. Um, and then, of course, I had, you know, I had to study piano and uh, as well as voice. So it's just, uh, it's been a, an amazing love affair, if you, if you want to call it that. So your, your career has sort of spanned what I call three diverse sectors. I mean, the, the arts and music, as you've just, just given us a, a brief overview. Um, but you've had a corporate um, uh, management career, consulting uh, career, 
but now we find you in the in the not for profit and charitable space. So it's it, it's sort of three distinct um, uh, segments that you've been involved in. So. Of course, uh, you know we're talking to not-for-profit leaders, so I'm really interested to know what attracted you to this sector, um, and um, you know, you know, can you provide some insights as to sort of what drew you towards the not-for-profit sector? Given you know you've had a significant corporate experience as well. Mm. Yeah, look, and the, the interesting thing is that there is there is something that ties all of those three careers together, and that is really a love of people mm. uh, and communication. Um, you know, I'm a firm believer that. Unless you can relate to people, build relationships and trust, regardless yeah, yeah. of what sector you're in, um, you won't be successful. I've seen some very, very um, technically gifted people but who haven't had that ability to build rapport and communicate and, and haven't really reached their full potential because of that. And for me, what links all three careers together, whether it's performing, whether it's in corporate or not-for-profit, is that ability to communicate and, and tell a story and a message and bring people along with you, whether you're on stage or you're in a boardroom, it's about bringing people with you on that journey. It's interesting you say that because um, so often in my conversations with uh, leaders like yourself, that comes up a lot, the stories we tell. And again, fascinated to see that, you know, this performing arts that you've come from where you're telling a story and that people are really engaged in the story. I know, I know from my own experience, and then, as I said, speaking to other leaders, that those stories are powerful uh, in terms of connecting with people. Would you agree? Look, absolutely, and, and probably um, none more so than in the not-for-profit sector because yeah. when we're, whether we're talking to our stakeholders, whether we're talking to our um, you know, constituents, our community, whoever it is, it, it's those stories and that ability to engage people and to get people to follow your cause. Um, that, that's really what is important and that, that's where the traction lies. Um, and I found exactly the same you know, in, in my corporate career. It was that ability to, to actually communicate the value of a proposition um, to a client that was really, really important. You know, particularly, and as you would know, Patrick, with you know some of the larger consulting firms, um, the the expertise you could throw a blanket across the professionals because they're all very talented people. Sure. Um, what really sets them apart is their ability to really um, demonstrate value and have a strong value proposition and bring the client along with them on that mm-hmm. on that journey. Um, and that's why you know I say that that that's for me is is probably the number one. Thing that that has kind of led me right through my my journey so far. Well, let's talk about where where you are currently because um, you know that's of of interest to us in, in terms of now leading a charitable organisation. And I get a sense now how you've come to this spot uh, from what you've just explained in terms of you know been wanting to uh, lead people through your communication skills through um, you know through the stories that you can tell. So Parkinson's is is a difficult story, isn't it? It's it's a challenging story. It's quite confronting in, in many respects, isn't it? Because it it talks about our you know our, our demise potentially in terms of you know what happens as we age, and then potentially um, these uh, do we call it a disease? Is that is that an appropriate term? Or yeah, this? look, we refer to it as a condition, a condition generally, um, you, yeah. but it is Parkinson's disease, disease and that's yeah. the medical you know um, descriptor for it. Um, Look, I guess my, my journey coming or 
getting to here, um, I've always wanted to make a difference um, yep. ever since I can remember and I was fortunate enough to um, to be able to join a couple of uh, not-for-profit boards uh, while I was still in my corporate career and that was what gave me, the, the ah. I guess, the... The uh, the taste and the and the desire to really do more, um, and I figured that, you know, it's great to be in a governance role, but you can only do so much from a governance yes. perspective. Yeah. And I, I yeah. decided a few years ago to take the plunge and jump into an operational role and leave corporate behind. Uh, and Any as regrets? You know, Any regrets? No, none, none at all. Absolutely none at all. I love every single day, uh, and I have ever since I left. You know, and and I had. Former colleagues say to me, "Oh, you know, you it won't be the same." And you know, and some people said to me, "Oh, how can you, um, you know, how can you go to the not-for-profit sector? You you won't earn as much." Well, I said, "Well, <laughs> you know, it's not about the money. You don't go into the not-for-profit sector for the money. You go in it to make a difference." And um, and when I did that the first time, and as you know, I, I um, moved into a, a national children's cancer charity. Yeah. Um, that. That really cemented for me um, that I had made the right decision. Um, and then, of course, when the opportunity came up at Parkinson's Queensland, um, you know, that was an opportunity to really, you know, take the reins and, and make a significant difference. Yeah, and look, thanks for those insights because um, we're always advocating to, to get good leaders into this space and, and it's sometimes become quite challenging because of all those reasons you outlined that people think that not-for-profits isn't as financially rewarding or isn't this or isn't that. But the reality is it's got so much to offer, as you've just outlined, in terms of organisations with purpose, organisations that are doing amazing work with our communities, particularly those vulnerable members of our community that need that support. So the rewards are vast, you know. The, the financial rewards, of course, that's what that's why we have to work, but there's so many other rewards that I see day in, day out with leaders, and I'm really pleased to hear your summary as well. Uh, Miguel, let's, let's, um, let's tell everyone about Parkinson's. So just give us a bit of a snapshot of Parkinson's, like, let's just say in Queensland, and it's it sort of the scope and, and the size of its impact across the state. Sure. Well, for, for those that might not be aware, of course, Parkinson's is a neurological condition. It's degenerative. It's progressive. Um, currently in Queensland, we believe there could be upwards of 18,000-plus Queenslanders living with Parkinson's. Wow. Um, around, across Australia, that number is closer to about 130,000. Um, wow. And it is now the fastest growing neurological condition in the world. And researchers tell us that the global numbers will double within the next 10 years. So that's a significant number of the population now. Um, yeah. yeah. You know, and um, as we're seeing, particularly um, over the last uh, 12 to 18 months, as people, you know, have been home more and, uh, you know, and, and obviously notice perhaps changes and things that have been going on. Um, the demand for our services has increased and we're getting more uh, people calling us and interestingly um, younger people as well now. Um, yeah, well you mentioned 18,000 Queenslanders which is extraordinarily high but of course that's the flow on impact though of a much bigger number than that isn't there in terms of you know the individual's partner or their extended family that that are you know the carers and support net, net, networks for those individuals that have that deteriorating condition um, is um, you know a much bigger number than than eighteen thousand, of course. Yeah. Well, if you look at the you know what I guess what's typically known as the the, the circle of influence around an individual, there could be up to eight people 
um, per person with family members and whatnot. So, you know, we're talking 140,000, yeah, people yeah. impacted across the state. That's, that's a significant number. So, like many of these um, conditions that we're confronted with as we age, and I suppose it's, it's also part of this, um, you know, the ageing population we have around the world, not just in Australia, that we're living longer, and of course these conditions are impacting on our, on our longevity. At the moment, I stand, there's no direct cure for Parkinson's. That's What's correct. the sort of medical science say about the future potentially for any cure? Well, it's interesting. I, um, I, I spend uh, quite a bit of time uh, speaking to researchers from sure. various institutions, and we're incredibly fortunate in Queensland. There are some amazing institutions doing yep. some great research and some great work. But you're right, there is no cure. Um, at the moment, symptoms can be controlled through medication and through some surgery, but there's no cure, and there's nothing really on the horizon at the moment. Researchers are working towards a cure, but the best that they can do or we can do at the moment is, one, manage the symptoms through medication, as I said, and and surgery. And what we as Parkinson's Queensland try to do is try and improve um, people's daily lives and and, and hopefully improve their their well-being through some of the things that we do. Now, of course, Parkinson's condition is, unfortunately, you know, one of many challenges that uh, that we're confronted with as as a western uh, western country aren't we in terms of uh, various illnesses um, and and I see from your website that your your key message is make Parkinson a priority so I can understand the, the reasons for that but have you how have you been able to sort of cut through the I suppose we call it a competitive environment in some respects for other charitable and very worthwhile causes, no doubt, in terms of you know the cancer space or um, you know multiple sclerosis or you know a whole range of other conditions that that afflict uh, individuals. So how's that work for you guys? Yeah, look, it's it's um, I, I guess the the key with Parkinson's is there is still a a stigma attached to it, um, and people with Parkinson's tend to just get on with it and and not want to publicise or you know or tell their story. Um, and so, and because of that, and there's also that that belief that Parkinson's only affects older people, when in fact about twenty percent of um, Parkinson's sufferers are people in their thirties, forties, and fifties, people of working age. Um, and so our focus in order to get the message out is to use people's stories. And so we've, yeah. we've um, gone out and we've recorded and, and, and tried to explain to the broader community the impact of Parkinson's on an individual because it's one thing to talk about Parkinson's disease. It's another thing to understand how it affects an individual and how it affects a family and how it affects the daughter of, a, of someone who's when her father was diagnosed when she was two years of age and mm. she had to go through school and high school and her 21st with her dad's condition progressively getting worse. That's, you know, and as I, as I said right at the start, stories are really powerful. Sure. So we've tried to use stories to get the message out and um, and that's starting to get traction. We need to do a lot more of that, of course, yep. Yep. but uh, that's a way to, to get the message out that, Parkinson's is here. It can affect anybody, any age, um, regardless of you know your your background, your, your socio economic background. Yep. it really is cut through it, everything. Exactly. And j- just to, to finish on on the 
Parkinson's itself. Is it an older person's condition or, you know, does it hold no boundary there either? Um, about 80% of the people that are diagnosed are generally, you know, aged over 65. Um, that is still the case. Um, right. But we are seeing, as I said, about 20% of people diagnosed uh, are in their 30s, 40s, 50s, working age, people with young children. Um, and we've got a number of those that we that we work with. But predominantly, it is still those people that are sort of 65 plus. And male to female, it's, it's reasonably evenly split. It's about sort of 45, uh, it's about yeah, 45, 55, 55% male, 45% female roughly. Let's take a short break now for a quick word about our podcast partner, Parkinson's Queensland. Parkinson Queensland is a not-for-profit organisation established in 1985, providing support, information and education to people living with Parkinson's, their carers and families, as well as health professionals. Parkinson's Queensland represents and supports people with Parkinson's right across Queensland from diagnosis and through the progression of the disease. So whether you're looking for information on Parkinson's disease, educational resources or you need support, the Parkinson's team is ready to assist. The Parkinson Queensland information line is 1800 644 189. Today I'm with Miguel Diaz, CEO of Parkinson's Queensland. Now, now given that, as you know, I work a lot in the aged care space as well, is there a, is there a connection with aged care sector itself and Parkinson's? We are making connections. Um, there, it, there probably needs to be more done in that collaboration space. Um, we do know that, um, you know, more and more people are moving into residential aged care who have Parkinson's. And one of the things we do know is that um, not all of the aged care providers have the staff that are um, I guess educated in sure. in supporting someone with Parkinson's. The thing with Parkinson's is that no one person has the same symptoms, so it manifests differently in everybody. Um, and in fact, whilst people think of Parkinson's, generally they'll think of the motor symptoms, you know, the tremor yeah, and things yeah. like that. The non-motor symptoms can actually be even more debilitating and more challenging than the motor symptoms because, yeah. you know, the motor symptoms you can control with medication. It's the non-motor symptoms. And they're the things that uh, that's the kind of information that we're trying to get out to yeah. the aged care sector particularly. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah, well, I, um, I think, yeah, there are, there are great opportunities for collaboration there because, you know, aged care is dealing with uh, dementia, as an example, you know, Alzheimer's, et cetera, and, and, and this is another condition that they will need to understand as uh, that big bubble of baby boomers comes through over the next sort of 20, 30 years. And uh, as you say, that the... the figures are pretty scary in terms of the numbers and the increase that's going to happen with the Parkinson condition. Of course, there's um, some very, I suppose, famous um, uh, people around the world that have, um, have their Parkinson conditions and Muhammad Ali comes to mind as, uh, as, as someone that was a big advocate for, for Parkinson's. Um, um, Michael J. Fox was another that sort of comes to mind. So um, it's good to see that those those people as well are are trying to show people that they can continue their lives firstly and Michael J. Fox has continued his acting career which has been extraordinary really, hasn't it, in some respects? Yeah, look, it, it's, um, uh, it, 
and, and Michael J. Fox was diagnosed, I think he was 29, yeah. so he's been living with it for a very long time. We've, I've got Billy Connolly, who yeah. you know, yeah. most of us will know as well. So there, there have been a number of famous people, and it is great that, you know, that the message is out there. Um, I think the more of that that we can communicate and, and the more that we can... Stories. The yeah. more stories, yeah. uh, the more that we can let people know what it is like to live with Parkinson's because it yeah. is, whilst Parkinson's itself is not a death sentence, it is life-changing um, sure. and it, because it is progressive and debilitating, uh, you know, it, it is life-changing. So they're the kind of things that we need to make the community aware yeah. of. Now, um, guests on our podcast come from a real range and diverse backgrounds but have enjoyed successful careers um, and we often ask them their views on contemporary leadership. What's your, what's your current approach to leadership? I'm getting a sense that you're a real communicator uh, from our earlier conversation, stories, important. But just give maybe a summary of what's your approach to leadership. Look, I think for me the main thing is... Um, to one, surround yourself with good people. You know, I'm the first one to put my hand up and say, I don't have the answers to every question. Yep. So I do need a good team around me um, yeah. and, yep. and that, you know, we can work together on things. So that's the first thing. Good. Um, I think the second thing is once you've got a good team around you, empower them and let them do and, and let them shine, right? It's no good having yeah. a good team around you if, yeah. if you don't let them do, you know. I often hear a, a statement that people say, just get out of their way, <laughs> you know, just exactly. let them go. So, exactly. Um, so absolutely empower them and, um, and be open with them and communicate with them, you know, let them know exactly how things are and, you know, yep. and, and where things are. Even tough things? Even tough things, absolutely. Mm. Um, in fact, um, you know, I, I'm a firm believer in, in being very transparent with, um, you know, anything to do with our organisation. I do say to our people, um, you know, we are in the business of, run, of running a charity. So, because, you know, there, there can sometimes be a belief that because you're a charity... Um, you may not necessarily, you know, be running things the way that they should be run. But, you know, we are in the business of running a charity. So just yeah. because we're not for profit doesn't mean we're for loss either because <laughs> uh, we, we, can't, do, we yeah. can't do the work that we, we're meant to do. So, But within that, yes, let them know where we're at and how their role contributes to where the organisation's heading and, and what we're doing. Yeah. And in this journey, um, what's changed for you? You know, are you the same leader now in 2021 that you were in your younger career? And what's changed, if it has? No, I, I definitely... Well, I had more hair once upon a time, Patrick. <laughs> that's, that's a start. Um, no, look, I think, um, you know, you learn and, and experience, you know, teaches us things. Uh, I think these days I am... Um, I, I'm pro- I would probably have to say I'm a lot more measured and and yeah, and a right. lot calmer under pressure perhaps than I was when I was when I was younger yeah, um, yeah. Comes uh, with experience no doubt very good <laughs> <laughs> um, and I think that the last particularly you know the last 18 months because we've all been living under mm. this you know um, I guess strained environment correct um, the last 18 months have actually um, reinforced the fact that it's actually really really important to be adaptable and nimble and 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 be able to change. I actually don't, and I have to confess, I don't like the word pivot. Everyone sort of moved into pivot because to me pivot means that you're staying in the same spot but you're just changing your angle of attack or your angle of view. And if 
the last 18 months have taught us anything, it's that you can't stay in the same spot. Mm-hmm. You actually have to look for new ways, new directions, new things, and go with the flow and, and adapt really, really quickly. Um, so that's, you know, the last 18 months certainly um, have certainly taught me that. Uh, you mentioned that obviously you've matured, let's say, in terms of your leadership approach over the years. Has there been any one along that journey that you've, you know, that's, that's helped you in that or been mentor or been a catalyst to some of these changes in that time? Look, I've been uh, incredibly fortunate. I've had some fantastic mentors from, you know, from a very uh, young age. Um, but I would probably, there, there are probably certainly two individuals that really stand out for me. Um, yep. Very early on in my career, there was a gentleman by the name of Doug Maloof, who is sort of oh, yeah. doyen yeah. of the yeah, real yeah. estate industry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, well I, I was happy enough, uh, lucky enough, uh, and very happy to work um, with Doug for a number of years. Um, and, uh, you know, when you're a sort of a struggling artist, you, you've got to do whatever you can. And I sold real estate for a number of years sure. working with Doug. Um, I learned a lot about the way you treat clients uh, the way you build relationships. Um, ah. You know, he took me under his wing and, and he really taught me a lot um, during the time that I was there. Great example. Yeah. yeah. And then um, I was fortunate enough when I went to work at PricewaterhouseCoopers that, uh, again, um, I had an amazing mentor in um, Margaret Gibson who um, was the chair of the Board of Partners at one time. And Margaret was actually, she's the one responsible for um, for encouraging me to join um, my very first board, which was the board of the RSPCA Queensland. Oh, right. And that was what set me on the path into the not-for-profit sector. And Margaret was one of the ones that really drilled into me that just because you, you are working with a charity or within a charity, never forget that it's a business and you have to treat it as such. Agreed. Um, so they're, they're, prob- they're definitely the two that you know, stick out. Obviously, from a, you know, a musical perspective, I've had... Some um, some pretty amazing mentors. Um, uh, one, the the one probably for me that again was life changing at that time was Richard Gill, who's a uh, you know famous Australian yep. conductor yep. and educator. Yep. Yep. Um, I was lucky enough to study under Richard, um, oh. and he um, he got me into the Australian Opera um, after I graduated from the Conservatorium, um, and um, and he was a huge loss to the music you know to the industry yeah. a few yeah. years ago. Um, so, look, I think for anybody, um, mentors for me are really, really important. Pivotal, aren't they, really? Absolutely critical. They can help you not only develop your skill sets, but they can help you on your career path. And, you know, those examples all helped you on that path to your career, really, Absolutely. in many respects. Very influential, aren't they? Yeah. So, um, yeah, we, we often mention mentors to, uh, to our audience because the importance, no matter what stage you're at in your career, they're very useful, very helpful, particularly they're, you know, they're independent, they're away from the cut and thrust of your normal day-to-day work and they can really just help you question, you know, not only your values but where you're, where you're going as a leader in, in that particular time of your career. Now, um, I just want to, just want to examine in the, in the course of your career, you, you've talked about obviously your time in the corporate space and now the not-for-profit space. And I know you mentioned earlier that some of your corporate colleagues sort of bemoan the fact of you moving to the not-for-profits in some respects. But what, what have you seen now? Uh, are there big differences? And, and, and if there are, what are they? And uh, you know, can we dispel some of the myths that seem to float around between the, the difference between not-for-profit and the corporate space, if any? 
Look, I, th- I think the main difference is that when you're in a not-for-profit, you are working to a mission, to yeah. the organisation's mission. Um, and I think, um, and I know uh, some former colleagues that have tried to make the move into the not-for-profit sector and it hasn't worked out for them. Um, you can't come into the not-for-profit sector purely with a commercial mindset. Uh, the the key is to find that balance be- between the commercial and the mission because yep. without the mission, you really don't have a purpose. Yep. Um, but if you focus solely on the mission without you know, having a solid grasp of the commercial side of things, you can't deliver on your mission anyway. So it's finding that balance, which mm. for me is is really, really critical. So never lose sight of the fact that you're still running a business, but you've got a, a mission and um, and your stakeholders are, you know, a much broader group. So in our case, we're talking about not just the Parkinson's community, but government corporate you know it's a very oh, yeah. broad yeah, it's health professionals yeah. it's a much broader group Research, of stakeholders yeah, that, yeah. that you're managing um so they're probably the main the main differences um one of our previous um uh, guests on the scene and heard uh, michael goldsworthy has a, a a similar way of of describing that he, he says we have to combine our heart and our head in the not-for-profit space not absolutely just too much heart no good. Too much head, you know, business, no good either. So absolutely agree, that balance is vital. And I agree, that's a big difference, isn't it? The fact that we're, we're purpose-driven, mission-driven organisations, that we're there for a purpose. And if you can't embrace that purpose and you just have this corporate overlay, then, then there's going to be a lot of pushback, I, I'd, I'd suggest. So it's being able to bring the good components of that corporate space so that we are understanding we're running a business we have to return a surplus. We have to, you know, invest and in all those, all those good, good work that the corporate space does. But at the same time, we're here for the people, the purpose of what we're doing. So, yeah, well said. Now, finally, um, our audience is a variety of not-for-profit providers in aged care, disability, health, charitable community spaces, and so just want to maybe get you to summarise. What are some of the the key messages? Um, you know, you would you would say to them about leading a charity, leading a not for profit organisation. You know, we've picked up quite a few today from your conversation around, you know, the, the communication skills, the the making sure we're using the stories. But you know, what are the key things that you'd summarise for them? Look, I think for me, um, probably the most critical thing to remember is that everything that we do is about people, yeah. whether it's about our own teams. the people within our organisation or the people that we serve and we provide services to or any of our stakeholders, it is all about people. Um, And if you've got that as your focus and you can really hone in on um, clear communication and bringing people along with you, you can achieve a lot. Um, The minute you forget that what, what we're all doing is about people. I think that's where things, for me anyway, can um, can go off the rails because without those people, you really can't achieve much. Agreed. Yeah. We're in the people business, aren't we, ultimately? We absolutely are in the people business, yeah. Miguel, thanks for your time today. We really appreciate our chat. And uh, um, before we go, though, um, do you sing regularly still? I don't, Patrick. I uh, occasionally sing in the shower and... Uh, <laughs> Um, my, um, I occasionally will get a, 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 a very loud uh, yell from one of my children going, <laughs> Dad, <laughs> stop it. 
Uh, my my brother Brian, who was one of our guests here, he's uh, he's uh, in the um, in the QPAC choir, and so uh, he loves singing. Any chance he get, he'll sing. So he, he'll understand that situation very well. Uh, Miguel, thanks again for your time, and uh, all the best with your your pursuits. Thank you, Patrick. Thanks for having me, and uh, it's been a pleasure. Thanks very much. And thanks to our podcast partner, Parkinson's Queensland. Thanks also to Derek Tan and his team at Generator, our marketing and communications consultants, for producing this podcast. And thank you for tuning in today. I hope you enjoyed our sixth podcast. Join us soon when we'll talk again with industry leaders about issues that shape our communities. Until next time, I'm Patrick Hurd and this is Seen and Heard. 